This is the eternal question. What is Peacock is like will be the name of my memoir. What Peacock was a year ago is not what Peacock is today. And it seems like they're undergoing a radical programming strategy shift. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, November 1st, and today Julia Alexander is here to talk about some stunning news in the streaming world, that the comedy Girls 5 Eva, one of Peacock's most acclaimed shows, is moving to its much bigger rival, Netflix. But as Julia explains, the move actually makes a ton of sense for both streamers. And later, Bill Cohan is here to give us a quick update on Elon Musk's first few days running Twitter and what he thinks about rumors that Twitter might make users pay to get that precious blue verified checkmark on their profile. With layoffs already happening, will any of these new product ideas flying around be enough to keep Twitter afloat in the Musk era? We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of the Powers That Be. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Welcome to November. I'm joined today by Julia Alexander, who's gonna break down for us what Deadline called a, quote, streaming shocker. The show Girls 5 Eva, which is critically acclaimed on Peacock, moved to Netflix uh, for season three. Julia, this was an interesting move. Why is it a streaming shocker, first of all, that this would happen? Think of how long Peacock's been around and how many originals they have. One, there aren't that many. So the idea that Peacock is selling one of its few originals to a competitor is shocking in itself. But also, it's... One of the best reviewed shows on Peacock, it's one of the few shows that actually seemed to have some critical appeal and some conversation online about it, even if the viewership was reportedly not there enough for um, NBC Universal to really see it as their own internal hit. But those kind of things, when we think about what a Peacock show is, Girls 5 Eva was kind of the example of what a good Peacock show could be for that streaming service. So Girls 5 Eva, for people who haven't seen it, is... Comedy series, Busy Phillips, Sarah Bareilles, Renee Goldsberry, Paula Pell, who used to work for SNL and 30 Rock is a collaborator with Tina Fey. And Tina Fey produced this. And basically the show was about a girl band that came out in like peak boy girl band era in like the early 2000s. And now they're all moms and they're older and they get back together. And it's funny. I love it. But it hasn't done well, like in terms of viewers, right? So like, what are people actually watching on Peacock instead? I mean, that's a great question. We don't have a lot of public reporting in the sense that we do where Netflix provides, you know, their own top 10 weekly lists and Nielsen plugs into them. Nielsen isn't plugged into Peacock as far as I know. And even if it was, those shows don't have the viewership outside of NFL uh, Sunday football or outside of the Olympics, the World Cup to really break through the Nielsen top 10. So what we have to go off of is kind of what we see trending in the app and then our own information about stuff and public reporting. And so what people are watching on Peacock, which kind of explains what seems like a programming strategy shift, is a lot of what I refer to as typical familial gender norm stuff. I refer to it like that because it's things for dad, things for mom, things for the kids. You've got like NFL stuff. You've got the Real Housewives. You've got the Hallmark Channel. Now they just announced that today as we're recording, coming to Peacock. Then you've got a lot of cartoons and then you have some universal movies that kind of go over there. So what Peacock seems to be and what Peacock should be is kind of this doubling down on an audience of cable cord cutters who are looking for a cheap alternative to kind of all these streaming services. 
So within that, the best way to do it is to double down on what works. It's a lot of Bravo. It's a lot of sports, whatever that may be. What doesn't necessarily work, at least at acquiring subscribers, which is the preeminent goal right now for a streaming service like Peacock, is the type of offbeat comedies like Girls 5 Eva, like Rutherford Falls. These are the type of comedies that comedy nerds love, but people aren't necessarily seeking out a streaming service for it. They're not going to pay five to 10 bucks a month just for access to those shows. However, it is the exact type of series that Netflix not only wants, but Netflix needs, especially in its domestic market, which is experiencing some pretty heavy churn and looking at a potential ceiling in terms of how much more it can grow subscriber-wise. Can you dig into that a little bit? Like, why does Netflix need a buzzy comedy that college-educated elites watch? (laughs) (laughs) So different types of shows are supposed to accomplish different types of things. If we look at some of the big dramas that we associate with Netflix, The Crown, Stranger Things, those are really expensive shows designed to bring in new subscribers. So if you talk to a financial planning and analysis team at any streaming service, they have these goals. You know, a show like House of the Dragon may be expected to do 20 million viewers on average across an episode and bring in 3 million viewers that stay there for six to nine months after the show ends. That's kind of their metric of success. Versus a comedy, if we think about a Seinfeld or a uh, Big Bang Theory or Friends, these types of shows don't necessarily bring in subscribers, but they have what we refer to in the industry as very low decay rates, which basically means what is the level of viewership, level of engagement or demand in between a new season or after the show ends every year? You know, what is that level of, of interest that people still have? Comedies have very, very low decay rate, which means that people are still watching them, still engaging with them years after a show ends. That's why something like South Park can go for a billion dollars. It's why The Office went for $500 million. Netflix doesn't have a lot of these, one, long-running comedies, but two type of comedies that they own that people want to tune into. They have a Seinfeld. They have a New Girl. They used to have The Office and Friends, which did very well for them. And those shows are huge retention drivers, which means people stay for those shows. They watch the new big show, then they stay for those, which just means that you have sustainable revenue. And what Netflix needs in regions like the United States and Canada, which is its most profitable region, looking at about, I think it's about 1640 uh, average revenue per user at this point. It's the highest in, in any of its region. If we look at that, what Netflix needs is those customers to stay. So how do you get those customers to stay? You give them comedies that they're really into, that they stick around for alongside unscripted alongside procedurals, you know, stuff like Grey's Anatomy, stuff like NCIS, stuff like The Floor is Lava, all those types of shows really keep people engaged after they're done watching the big drama that they're probably not going to rewatch for a few years or until the new season comes out. And so when we look at this deal, this deal makes a lot of sense for an NBC Universal where it's not doing well on Peacock. It's costing them more money to keep it on the platform if they're paying for it over each month and each month and no one's watching it than it would to sell it to Netflix. At the core of this question is the core of every question in Hollywood right now. As if you're someone like an NBC Universal who both sells content and owns content, distributes content. Is it more valuable to keep it on Peacock? Meaning, is it going to actually bring more value in terms of subscriber acquisition or strong retention? Or is it more valuable to sell that show, projecting when you do the modeling, projecting that five-year growth on that show? And here it seems like they made the smart decision, in my opinion, to look at it and say, no, we can sell this to Netflix. It's a show that they really need that we think we can get more value for than we would keeping it on our platform. And so the last thing I want to ask you, I feel like we've had this conversation before also, how is Peacock defining itself in the ocean of streamers at this point? Like, what's its brand? I mean, this is the eternal question, Peter. This is what is Peacock (laughs) is like, I want, it will be the name of my memoir. What what is Peacock? (laughs) I hope not. (laughs) 
what Peacock was a year ago is not what Peacock is today. And it seems like they're undergoing a radical programming strategy shift. It seems like they're kind of moving away from AVOD a little bit into SVOD, which is its own kind of corporate development distribution strategic shift. But then you've got the programming side, which is saying we're going to double down on Bravo or we're going to do more Hallmark or we're going to do, you know, another Dick Wolf show in another city somewhere. Like we're going to have another Law and Order somewhere, Chicago Med. Those are the types of shows that do really well for them alongside really leaning on Universal and building up franchises from the Universal IP and bringing those movies directly to Peacock 45 days after they're in theaters. Those lead to significant bumps in subscribers for that company. And so what we can see from that is the idea of being this kind of catch-all for the older cable cutters who are now looking to cancel their service. They want somewhere to go that's not too expensive. They're going to have Netflix. What else do they have? Peacock wants to be the other thing. Okay, you have Netflix. We have all the shows that you liked from your cable days, plus sports, plus news. We want you to subscribe for us to $10 a month. That's kind of what they're going to be. Or ideally, that is what they seem like they are trying to be. Whether or not that actually happens, who knows? But it feels like the first time in a long time that Peacock has an actual strategy, which is deeply exciting for anyone who covers the space. What city would you like to see a Law & Order spinoff? What's your top choice? New Orleans. Isn't there already a New Orleans show? I think there's an NCIS New Orleans. NCIS, that's what it is. I want to see Law and Order NCIS, or even like an Alaska. That'd be fun. There's a Hawaii. There's an NCIS Hawaii. <laughs> yes. I want to do like Law and Order Portland, and it's all like Antifa and like weird Christians, and I don't know, but they probably won't do that. I'd green light it. Julia? Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. When we come back, Bill Cohan is here to talk about what else? Elon Musk and Twitter. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here with Bill Cohan. Glad to have you back on the pod. Ben, always good to be there with you. Bill, you have established yourself as one of the nations and really one of the world's foremost authorities on Twitter, or at least Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. It's a Twitter deal. Of the Twitter deal, of Elon Musk's deal to buy Twitter. Well, now he's bought it. Yes. Even though he didn't really want to. It's been delisted from the NASDAQ. And now as you've been writing and reporting, Elon has the monumental task before him of actually taking this company, which has never really managed to develop a robust advertising business which has sort of barely eked out a profit in recent years. And he needs to find a way to actually generate more cash flow. Of course, he's talked a lot about turning Twitter as a platform into a haven for free speech, turning it into this global town square. But none of that really means anything if he can't figure out a way to get revenue up and get costs down. So I want to talk about some of his proposals to do that. But first, just to give listeners a primer, why is it so important that he gets the company's EBITDA up and the debt under control? Well, if you weren't the world's richest man, uh, Ben, with a net worth of around 200 billion these days, it, it would be like completely obvious why he needs to get it together because he's got debt that's equal to 13 times or more the EBITDA of this company, which is like wildly over leveraged, even though. 75% of the capital structure is equity. So it's this very strange situation where there's probably more equity dollars in this deal than in any leverage buyout in history, which is incredible, number one. 
on the other hand, because the EBITDA is so low and he decided to pay so much for it, 44 times EBITDA, the debt is 13 times EBITDA, which is senior debt too. It's basically senior secured debt at 13 times is absurd. I mean, it's like beyond even what the most aggressive LBO firms try to do. The fact that there's all this equity is almost irrelevant at this point. The problem is, can the cash flow from this company service the debt? You know, maybe all these cuts to personnel, maybe the efforts to make blue checkmark people pay $20 a month to continue that. Maybe that's all a way to generate revenue and profitable revenue so that he can generate enough EBITDA to pay the interest on the $13 billion of debt. At the moment, the $13 billion of debt is held by his consortium of banks. That in itself is very unusual. Normally, by this point in the deal, i.e. after closing, they would have syndicated that debt off and sold it and gotten rid of it. But they can't do that or they don't want to do that because the discount that they would have to take on their debt below par would require require them to, you know, take an immediate write-off of billions of dollars. You're talking about in, in order to make the debt attractive enough to buyers in this particular high interest rate environment. Right. Not to get too confusing for people, but basically uh, the interest rate on this debt has been capped by Elon as part of the original deal he did with the banks back in April. For investors to be wanting to buy the debt, the banks that are selling it have to take a big loss on what they've paid for it when they bought it from Elon. Nobody wants that to happen right now. That's why the banks are holding on to that debt, but there's a limit to how long they can hold on to that debt. These are all regulated banks. Many of them are regulated by the Fed. The Fed isn't just going to sit there and say, okay, Morgan Stanley, assuming they haven't, I think Morgan Stanley probably has has hedged this exposure, but you know, B of A or whoever, you know, oh, you know, you can just keep that debt on your balance sheet at par, even though it's worth 50 cents in the dollar. And, and, you know, we don't care. But that's not true. They care a lot. They're going to require them, if it's real, to market to market. And if it really is worth, you know, 50 cents in the dollar, they're going to have to put more capital against it. And if it's that's the case, they might as well just sell it because then they won't have to tie up both their balance sheet capital and their uh, their debt capital and their equity capital. It's just kind of this nightmare scenario for the banks. And it's going to be a nightmare scenario for Elon too, because if in fact he doesn't have enough EBITDA to pay this interest on the debt and the banks sell it at a discount, who buys debt at a discount? It's like the vulture investors. It's the Apollos and, you know, they're not nice people. You know, they're nice personally, but when it comes to you know buying distressed debt, if there's any kind of technical or payment default, they're going to foreclose. They're going to force it into involuntary bankruptcy. And Elon could lose Twitter. Maybe he wants to lose Twitter. Or if he doesn't want to lose Twitter, he's going to be the one have to buy this debt. Well, let's talk about some of those ways that he can make money or, or make more money from Twitter. As you mentioned, Elon is looking at charging users for blue check verification potentially as much as $20 a month. It could be less. We're not sure yet. I want to get more of your impressions on this, Bill, because you, I believe you are a blue check, Mark, uh, Twitter user yourself. I am a blue check. You are. I am too, full disclosure. And paid nothing for it, as I'm sure you did. I did not. I, I got it through Vanity Fair, where I used to work. There was a period during which most media companies had to 
go out to Twitter, submit a name of journalists and reporters who worked there and, and get them verification. This is actually important because this is sort of where the original idea for verification comes from. And Elon's idea for how to monetize it seems a tiny bit backwards to me because the original point of introducing this feature was to give other users a way of ensuring that journalists and communications people, spokespeople, brands, et cetera, were actually real people working for reputable outlets. You don't necessarily want to make that harder or decrease adoption of verification because it makes the experience worse for everybody. On the other hand, there is clearly a lot of unmonetized value there that you can harvest, and Elon wants to do that. And maybe media companies don't mind coughing up $20 per reporter to have that extra layer of credibility and extend their reach in the platform. But I wonder if this is actually going to make the experience for all users better or worse in the long run. You know, as we were talking about earlier today, I mean, like, do I want to pay more to get a blue check mark by my name on Twitter with the money going to Elon Musk than I pay for Netflix each month? That's not really hard because with, with Netflix, you know, you get kind of a lot of value or Apple TV or, what, you know, whatever it is. You get a lot of content, unlimited amount of content every month that, you know, most of which is pretty good, right? And it's certainly entertaining and it's certainly, you know, cheaper than like going to the movie theater, right? I mean, honestly, what value, what utility do I get out of having a blue check by my name? I couldn't tell you, honestly. I mean, it looks nice, but I have no idea what benefit that I get. So paying nothing for it feels right to me. And if you're going to bring Donald Trump back onto the platform, you know, you know, sayonara. But I don't see what you're getting for the $240 a year. You know, he's talked about wanting to turn Twitter into a super app, whatever that means. You know, he wants to have it run as a payments platform. He wants to integrate other kinds of services onto it. All those things take a lot of development work, a lot of, you know, smart engineers and product developers and all kinds of business people in between. And he wants to lay most of those people off. And a lot of them aren't going to stick around to find out whether they're getting a pink slip or not. It remains to be seen what he's going to be able to do here in terms of turning around this company, making it innovative, creating new products, while also drastically reducing the headcount. I know Elon likes to think that, you know, 75% of the 7,500 people, you know, are expendable and don't do anything. But, you know, I don't know enough about the Twitter P&L to know who at that company and how they're generating a billion dollars in EBITDA a year. And if you just willy-nilly got people who were helping to generate that billion dollars in EBITDA, what are you left with? And then you need people to implement this new blue check program. I mean, and who's going to pay for that. What if the alchemy that results from all of that is less than the 900 million he needs to make his interest payments every year? Unless he's the one that's going to step up and fill the cup that the company can't fill to pay off the interest payments every year. I mean, he's going to have to, or else he's going to lose control of the company. So he's going to have to make the interest payments. And then if the banks are forced by regulators to sell the debt, which at some point in 2023, they will be forced to do that, then if he's not the buyer of that debt and it gets into the hands of vulture investors, then he's got a nightmare on his hands. Maybe he doesn't care, uh, Ben, because he's the world's richest guy and he's like a tenth of his net worth. So, you know, maybe it's just like a folly 
any normal human being would never have done what he did, would never be in this fix, and would never have an easy way out. Well, Bill, I'm going to be doing my part to uh, bail out our friend with to the tune of $20 a month. I don't know about you, but let's, let's pitch in where we can. We got to help Elon out. Help Elon. Maybe we should have like stickers made up. Help Elon. Bill, thanks as always for coming by. Appreciate it. Great to see you, man. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.